attention if uh, you've been uh, on our events if you've been invited all, uh, interested you know that tonight um, is a special episode because we're getting ready to have a debate so um, in the studio we have Tristan Cottinger right Cottinger yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, we, you're we all kind of stink with names around <laughs> yeah. here I had Tristan right Cottinger yeah. anyway we have him in the studio with us he's a uh, brand new in-band apologist we'll get him uh, introducing himself here in just a second and we also have John Hawkins if you remember uh, we had a an episode a few weeks ago where a guy talked about his uh, conversion from Mormonism Church of the Latter-day Saints um, John Hawkins is back with us again um, to also debate uh, Tristan here so um, so basically that's pretty much it. I know uh, Dave, um, he's... I'm over here, man. He's you can't right see here. me, but I am here. Yeah. I can... There we go. We got we got your pop in. Hey! Right so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, we got, we're kind of squished in here um, tonight, but uh, this is going to be awesome to... Uh, we haven't had a debate um, in quite a while, so we, we are glad to have something like this um, as... Um, what we're doing a part of our podcast. Anyway, um, this is two years of Tag Your It. Uh, Dave uh, brought to my attention over the weekend. Um, two years ago, we started with our first episode, and here we are by the grace of God. Um, thankful to him, thankful to Dave um, and his family and just everybody. Thank you to you guys um, for being a part of this for two years. Um, if you have been the whole way, but if you haven't been the whole way, thanks for uh, joining and support um, and praying for us and coming to Apollocon and all those kind of things. And we pray um, and ask you to pray for uh, God to just uh, go more and more and whatever we can do to be a means for his glory and sharing the gospel in this area of Springfield, Southern Missouri, just wherever we go. So um, two years, it's awesome. So um, with that out of the way, um, again, we're having a debate and it's resolve is open or closed communion a more biblical model for the New Testament Church. That is the debate this evening. Um, again, we got Tristan. He will be arguing for the uh, open communion position. And we have John Hawkins arguing for a closed communion position. So um, first here, uh, John, we've got you on the line, right? Could you say a little hey? Hey, what's up? Oh, okay, well, we got go. you. He's not going to pull there a sigh on We were a bit nervous for a second there. Sigh <laughs> had that little delay on us last time. It. But anyway, yeah, just make sure we got John. But uh, anyway, um, let's start with Tristan since he is going to be starting this debate tonight. Uh, just give a quick introduction and tell these people who you are. All right. Uh, my name is Tristan, of course. I'm a uh, elder at Crossbridge Baptist Church. Um, I have five kids and... Uh, three grandsons, and um, I'm a welder by trade, and um, I do apologetics as uh, 
basically a, a main life course of study on the side of uh, trying to be involved in, in uh, being a good elder as much as I can. <laughs> so Awesome. Well, uh, John, uh, would you like to just give a quick, you know, for anybody that doesn't know who you are from the podcast already, just give a quick uh, introduction of who you are. Yeah, uh, I'm John Hawkins. I'm one of the pastors at Arbor Drive Community Church in York, Nebraska. Um, I am husband to Carly. I have three little girls, two of which are born, one of which will be born on the 19th of April. So we're getting ready for that. And uh, I am uh, one of the hosts of the Pastor Discussions podcast. And yeah, in my spare time, which I don't have much of, um, <laughs> I enjoy uh, just spending time with family, going out, uh, hanging out with friends, and uh, going to see movies. Awesome. That sounds awesome. Well, there you go, guys. There's our two debaters this evening. Just to let you know, this is an inter-league debate. Um, So we expect exemplary attitudes anyway (laughs) love each other with the love of christ um but yeah we are going to be discussing you know uh, a sticky point issue in some uh, situations so um that's what the tag you're at podcast is about um we're not just about uh apologetics with unbelief but you know there's also points where we need to uh, discuss things from a biblical perspective because we all and i know john tristan you both believe in sola scriptura amen the bible is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice and so this is a debate that comes from that attitude um we love the scriptures um without them we can know nothing so i know uh i think we're both baptists too right yeah we're we're all baptist right yeah sweet Go Baptists. <laughs> anyway, um, Dave, is there anything that you would like to say before? No, man. Well, what uh, I would say is, if you're discussing. watching, listening, uh, it's always a good thing if you've got a piece of paper. You can uh, flow is the debate term, but write down these arguments as they lay them out and see if they're responded to. The other thing is, if you're watching online and you want to submit a question, if you're mm. watching the live cast, you want to watch and you want to ask a uh, question that we will get to. There's a kind of a open dialogue discussion when Adam lays out the format for you. Uh, he'll tell you a little bit about that. And if you want to put in a question, uh, that would be a great time to do that. So uh, the questions aren't just coming from uh, from Tristan and from John and from Adam and I, but actually we'd love for people who are watching the debate to get a question in there. Just make sure that you direct it at someone and we'll try the best we can to get it to them. Yes. Yeah. uh, Yeah. We'll try to put that in the comment box um, while the uh, debate is going on too, just so that people that come in will know what to do. Uh, So anyway, let's start again. The debate tonight is, is open or closed communion, a more biblical model for the new Testament church. And here on the screen, you guys will see the debate outline. So first we will have opening statements. They will be seven minutes. Tristan, which is for the open communion position. He will go first, followed by John and his closed communion position. Next, we will have cross-examinations for three minutes. Tristan will examine John, followed by John's examination of Tristan. Then we'll move on to the rebuttal section, which will be 10 minutes apiece. Tristan will provide his rebuttal, followed by John. And then open dialogue for 10 minutes, and this will be an open, sort of lax time where one question at a time, um, we'll kind of, as moderators, kind of let that go back and forth. But this is where um, you guys who are watching, please, during the debate, if you hear something and you want to ask a question, 
please post that and direct it to the person you'd like to ask the question to. And this is where we'll have that time that Dave and I will represent the online folks and uh, we'll have questions ourselves, I'm sure. And we'll have 10 minutes of that. And then we'll move on to finish the debate with our closing statements, which Tristan and John will both have five minutes. And John will start first uh, with his concluding statement, followed by Tristan. So with that said, we've got the rules down and we are ready to debate. So, Tristan, are you feeling like you are ready to go? So, we've got timekeeper? Got the timer going here, and uh, I will be teeping time. You'll be able to hear the uh, timer go off, I think, when it is time. So, Tristan, and we will give a minute. Uh, yeah, I'll give a minute verbal and uh, let you know. So, Tristan, if you're ready to go, go ahead and start, and I'll start the time as you begin. All right. This debate is about providing a biblical answer to the question of who should be permitted to partake of the Lord's Supper and whether or not Scripture gives church leaders the command to prevent any true believers from participating in this ordinance simply because they are not members at the church performing the ordinance. The open position that I will be defending is where communion is offered to all confessing believers present who are not under church discipline. The closed position that John will be defending is where communion is offered only to members of that church that are present who are not under church discipline. Now, since John will be defending the closed position, he'll need to prove that the rules required to be a member of a local church are a prerequisite for any believer to partake of communion. He'll need to show us what the rules are for formal membership and where the command for strict adherence to those rules appear in the text. Due to the fact that believers are given a command when communion was instituted, do this in remembrance of me, and because John's position actually prevents believers from following that command, he bears the burden of proof. Therefore, in order for him to win the debate, he will need not only to show that his position is more biblical, but he will also need to show that the open position is actually unbiblical. I have a much simpler task. In order for the open position to be correct, I merely need to present a case that the preponderance of Scripture presents a clear declaration that all genuine believers are part of God's universal church and therefore should be allowed to take communion. Communion was meant for the church. The church is spoken of in many different ways in the New Testament. It is both local and universal. It is both visible and invisible. Even with all the problems that Paul mentions in Corinth, he starts his letter to the church of God, as in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together. So there's a local part, but then he continues, called to be saints with God, with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. Then Philippians 3.20 tells believers that our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians 2.19, believers are fellow citizens with saints and are of God's household. The Bible is full of this language that believers everywhere are part of the universal body. The Lord's Supper connects Christians with believers from every age going all the way back to the Passover. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10.16-18 that taking communion is to be a sharing in the body of Christ, that we who are many are one body because we all partake of the one bread. In verse 18, he says, Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? As if to say that by our participation in communion, we are demonstrating that we are part of the one body. Paul is here take, talking about church in the universal sense, the church as God sees it. Taking the supper should also cause believers to think of the future meal that they will share with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the new heavens, and is spoken of in Revelation 19, 9. The same meal that Christ pr pr promises to share with all elect believers in his Father's kingdom in Matthew 26, 29. Why would we assume we have the right to remove God's elect from the table he allows us to set in our local churches when he has already reserved a place for them at the table he has set in glory? 
Unless John can provide us a specific set of rules from Scripture as to who may become a member of a local church, certainly we would hope to find at least a list of reasons for who should not be allowed to take communion. It's interesting that the passage used for fencing the table, we are instructed in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight to let a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In fact, it doesn't even say to refrain after the examination. It says, examine himself and then eat and drink. And if they fail to discern the body properly, it says they eat and drink judgment on himself, just as you would expect to find if the responsibility lies on the one doing the eating and not the church leaders. In verse 31, it says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So what does it mean to discern the body? That's the question. Well, the entire first letter of the Corinthians is about division in the church. Of the 16 chapters, at least 13 deal with division. And because the passage begins by chiding Christians for how they are dividing the church, I believe the body spoken of here is the church. Chapter 10, 17 says, The Lord's Supper is about sharing one bread, because we are who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Then the conclusion finishes, verse 33 and 34, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. In Paul's next paragraph in chapter 12, he gives an in-depth explanation of the body as a metaphor for the church. He gives the same metaphor in many other places, and all of them point to this metaphor to describe the local and the universal church. But also, as we look at the structure of this passage, where each time it is said, body and blood, together, And then when it mentions discern the body, it says not body and blood. It just says discern the body. It's without the blood. I think it's clear to see why someone would prefer this interpretation that to discern the body is to fail to rightly consider who are the body of Christ, to our relationships to those in the universal body, and to cause divisions among God's citizens. He tells them that what they are doing shouldn't even be called the Lord's Supper. To bar the members of God's household from the Lord's table because they are not part of your formal local church membership is to unnecessarily divide the people of God and withhold the blessings afforded to believers, which is the very thing that Paul says caused their judgment. If we look at the historic creeds, confessions, and catechisms, we'd find support for either the closed or the open position. That said, the London Baptist Confession of 1677 and 1689 and the First Baptist Association Confession likely composed on American soil, the Kehakee Baptist Confession of 1777, both of which do not suggest fencing the table to believers for membership or baptism. There have been many great advocates of the open position, John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Matthew Henry, and Hercules Collins, who wrote the Orthodox Catechism and was a signatory to the London Baptist Confession. Even in our own time, Some of the most commonly used systematic theology texts used in Baptist seminaries are advocates of the open position. Wayne Grudem and Millard Erickson, to name just two. Several modern proponents include John Piper, Sam Storms, and Michael Heiser from Midwest Baptist Theological Seminary, who all see communion as open to all Christians in the universal church. And that's that's the end of my opening statement. All right, outstanding. Uh, That moves us over to John to have seven minutes to put forward his position for the closed communion. John, I'm going to go ahead and hit start whenever you take off, okay? All right, well, I would agree with a lot of what what my opponent just said. Um, There are some distinctives, though, that I think need to be considered. What, what is really at stake here in, in this debate and in this issue is the consistency of doctrinal distinctives among Baptists. So what I would want to do is I want to present four or five different lines of thinking that lead us to a conclusion that 
closed communion is the option that most closely aligns with the teaching of Scripture. First off, in 1 Corinthians, as was noted by my opponent, the central issue is an issue of unity in the local church. When he talked about unworthy participation, we need to consider what is unworthy participation. Unworthy participation, I think from the context, would be exclusivity and re, uh, rejecting certain people within the local body from participation by not waiting on them and involving them or including them in the communion. That said, every instance where we see communion is an instance where communion takes place in the local church. Uh, Thomas Schreiner said the very nature of, of the supper being a corporate experience should focus the attention on the community of believers. It is not a time for individual contemplation and personal communion with Christ. The communion is between Christ and his bodies with individuals as members of that body. So what it comes down to is, what does it mean to be a member of a local body? While I agree that there's a universal body uh, and a expression of that in the local body, the local body is the expression of the universal body. And the, or the local body has a authority and an importance that comes through as um, as significant to this debate. Thomas Schreiner also said the supper assumes a gathered community each time it's mentioned in the New Testament. In Acts 20, Paul and his companions were in Troas for a full week, but the Lord's Supper is celebrated on the first day of the week when they were gathered together. Furthermore, Paul admonishes in 1 Corinthians 11 to um, discusses the Lord's table as something which occurs when you come together as a church or when you come together. So what does it to mean to come together as a church? Does it mean that anybody who is a believer is a part of that church? While I agree that there is a universal church, the expression of that universal church is shown in the local church. Indeed, I don't think Paul would have made such a clean distinction between the universal and the local church since the local church is an expression of the universal church. In fact, the early church's understanding of baptism was that one was baptized into a local church, not just merely the universal church. This also raises issues for church discipline. As my opponent noted, he would hold that communion is open to all believers who are baptized who are not under church discipline. In order for church discipline to function properly, the person being disciplined must be a member of the local church. That's implied in uh, scripture, in what Christ says in Matthew 18, and then explicitly by Paul when he calls on the Corinthian church to exercise church discipline on a member who is in open uh, sin. When Christ says to take it to the church, certainly he doesn't mean to take it to all believers in the town or all believers in the state or all believers in the country or in the world. He means to take it to your local congregation. In the same way, when Paul is dealing with it in 1 Corinthians, it's within the context of the local church. In fact, almost all of the issues in 1 Corinthians can be nailed down to a local church. My opponent used the illustration that Paul, or noted the illustration that Paul uses of the body as a metaphor. The only way for that metaphor to fully function is if the parts of the body are within close proximity to one another. I conclude then that when Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians, he has primary in his mind the local church at Corinth and the issues that they are facing there that are unique to them. Therefore, all of the commands in that text are for that local church and can be applied more broadly but are centrally focused on the unity of that local church. Secondly, the Lord's Supper assumes the gathering of a community, as I've noted before. You have to have those that are in and those that are out. How do we define those that are in and those that are out? We define those that are in by baptism, in which case we would still, as my opponent said, need to be 
restricting the command to be baptized with our pedo-baptist brothers and sisters because we do not recognize infant baptism or sprinkling as a appropriate mode of baptism. Therefore, it is not a legitimate baptism. So if we are to say that we're to, we're to administer the Lord's Supper to all baptized believers who are not under church discipline, the qualifications of baptized believers and not under church discipline demand some sort of ecclesiological definition of who is in the local church. Thirdly, church discipline, as I noted, prohibits communion in 1 Corinthians. Paul admonishes them to exercise church discipline and to not eat with somebody who has been put out of the church. The eating there is um, alluding to, I think, the Lord's Supper. In addition, we see the same admonition in uh, Matthew 18, where Christ says to treat him as a tax collector, an outsider. In that case, the one under church discipline would not be permitted to participate in the Lord's Supper. Finally, we see that church history, and in particular Baptist history, shows closed communion to be the normative approach. In fact, in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, it in particular says members are those that are to be included in the Lord's Supper. In Acts 2.42, the reference to eating and drinking is taken by most or many scholars to mean participation in the Lord's Supper, not just merely a meal. Hence, the custom attested to by various authors of allowing and encouraging those participating to receive baptism. This is a, this is a quote, I'm sorry, from a, the apostolic tradition the catechumens to participate in the first part of the One worship minute. service consisting of prayer and praise and scripture and reading and interpretation, and then to dismiss them before the actual communion service. So what we see in the early church is, as I've noted above, the uh, early church associated baptism with entrance into the local church and unbaptized, even believers who were going through the catechism or catechism process were excused from the second part of the church service, which included the Lord's Supper. Since it is a local ordinance, we would have to define then the local church, since all Baptists believe that the uh, communion is a local ordinance of the local church. We would have to define that local church, and each local church would be responsible for defining what makes up a local church. All right. Well, uh, John being done with his opening statement, we are opening statements are over. And so we go into the next part of the debate, which is cross-examination. This is a time where each of them will end up discussing and asking questions um, to one another about their opening statements to gain more clarity and to move this debate forward. So anyway, with this cross-examine se session, um, Tristan or Tristan will go first. Um, and uh, cross-examine John, and then following, John will cross-examine Tristan. So, Tristan, um, as soon as you start asking questions, time will start. Okay, uh, just a second. Uh, John, uh, most of these are going to be yes or no questions as much as possible, so if you could, as much as you can, give those answers. Okay, right now. Is it possible to be a true believer, one who has trusted Christ's work on the cross to pay for their sins, but has not engaged in water baptism? Yes. Is it possible to be a true believer who has not covenanted to other believers in formal church membership? Yes, although I would say that is outside of the norm in right. the New Testament and history. Not, not normal, but it's possible. It's possible, yes. Would you agree that all true believers are members of the universal body of Christ? 
all true believers are united to Christ, yes, I believe that they are part of the body of Christ in the universal sense. Okay, do you believe that the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, will be all of the elect true believers in the universal body of Christ? Yes. So, do you think that God intended the Lord's Supper to be a blessing to all true believers? Through the local church, yes. Okay. Uh, to which church was Paul a member? Uh, well, and if we're talking about that, we've got an apostolic uh, issue there. So Paul as an apostle was church planting. So while he was with local churches, he was part of those local churches. Okay. So uh, he was allowed because he was an apostle. Is that correct? I would say because... He was a apostle and because he was the founding member of that church when he was there, you know, like if he was planting it or if he was there under apostolic instruction. Yes. That sounds more like the close position to me. Okay. By denying a true believer, are you not in effect denying their profession of faith? I would not say you're denying their profession of faith. No. One minute. Would you agree that the closed communion, by necessity, will pre pre prevent some believers from taking the supper? Prevent some believers from taking what? I'm sorry. Taking the Lord's Supper. By the closed position, yes. by necessity, you'll yes. be preventing some believers from taking the supper. Um, in theory, yes. In theory. So, so these are the same believers, you would agree, who will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is that correct? 30 seconds. 30 yes. seconds. Um, actually, um, I have one more question here. That's okay. Uh, I'll go ahead and pass over my time. All right. Well, that is the conclusion of Trison's time. Remember, Trison always want to just questions in I'm our uh, in our uh, cross examination. John, you have three minutes. Again, I'll give you verbals at one minute and at thirty seconds, and your time will start when you begin your first question. Would you agree that uh, though there can be believers that are unbaptized, it is normative that they should become baptized? Absolutely. Would you agree that a failure to be baptized indicates some sort of spiritual unhealth? Uh, typically, yeah. Would you call into question the legitimacy of one's profession if they were not baptized? Um, yeah, I think, I think we should. So uh, would you agree that baptism is an, uh, an accompanying uh, act of obedience that follows salvation? Uh, certainly. Would you agree that baptism unites one to the local body? Um, I believe it, it is shown in Scripture that um, uh, we see baptism and then we see um, people collected together as as members, but we don't na have a natural. There's no correlation between baptism and participation in local church. I, in I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that there is um, that is presented in scripture that is guaranteed every time. Uh, it just doesn't just doesn't say that. Okay. Would you say then that um, the uh, that membership in a local church is an important um, aspect for a believer? Oh, absolutely. So if somebody is refusing to be baptized and refusing to be a member of a local church, would that cause some issues or some questions as to the legitimacy of their profession of faith? Well, if, if they're um, 
saying, I refuse baptism, of course you should question that. That would be, that seems obvious. Okay, so when, uh, when we think about these two ordinances, are both of these ordinances ordinances of the local church? Well, I, I think that the only way a universal church exists is if, is if local churches also exist. It's just a necessity. Would you say that somebody can just go uh, baptize somebody who comes to faith apart from the involvement of the local church? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? One minute. Would, would, a, would a random believer who leads somebody to Christ be able to go and baptize that person apart from the involvement of the local church? Um, you, to be honest with you, I mean, I've heard that, but I, uh, that's, that would not be my suggestion. I would suggest um, it doesn't doesn't demand that uh, all baptized believers are done by um, clergy or anything like that. But would you agree that I, if that were, would you agree that seconds. if that were the case, that if uh, anybody just baptizes anybody on their own, that that would no longer be an ordinance of the local church? Then, um, I guess it depends. Uh, I, I, that's hard to answer because um, while we would like to have uh, someone give correct teaching when a baptism is done. Um, that certainly wouldn't be the case if it was an individual, but most people that would do a baptism would be from a church. So I guess I'm having a hard time answering that question. Um, I'm not sure exactly. And that time. is time. All right, so we are done with cross-examination. Uh, we are coming up to the rebuttal section. These are 10-minute statements. Tristan will... or. I keep on doing that. Tristan will be going first and followed by John. So uh, basically, whenever you are ready, you have a 10-minute rebuttal, Tristan. So we'll start the time whenever you speak. Okay. Right now. Okay, so uh, part of my rebuttal here is uh, written, and then I'll respond to the individual pieces there. The Christian life begins the moment a person repents and trusts Christ's blood to pay their penalty for their sins. Justification is an immediate activity that brings new desires because the new believer is now filled with the Holy Spirit. This process is an ongoing change of sanctification that happens gradually and progressively. But all the while, the justified believer is still a recipient of God's grace and is part of the church as God sees it. Sanctification requires a right teaching of the word proper guidance from elders and other mature Christians so that they can know how God desires for them to live rightly in these confused times. Our current period in history is one in which has a multitude of traditions who all teach their own interpretation of how to properly live the Christian life. Many new believers, especially here in America, bring their presuppositions, we love that word, which are based on, on the alternate, alternate traditions to ours, to the teaching they receive from our local churches. Acceptance and confirmation of right teaching is quite often a slow process. Anyone who has ever been an overseer of a local church should know that many times baptism and membership are two of the most difficult issues for new believers to grasp and that they are wrapped in a high level of confusion, especially for those who have a long history of familiarity with from outside the church looking in. A consistent case for what the scripture teaches in regards to the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper is what is needed to untangle this theological mess so that they may arrive at a clear understanding. All this is part of the discipleship as believers grow through sanctification. 
I preach sermons on baptism with a strong call for those who are true believers to be baptized, to not wait one more day if they have placed their faith and trust in Christ to be baptized, to do it as soon as possible. I've stated clearly in these sermons that baptism is for confessing believers only, and certainly not for infants, and that by and that the picture we have from Scripture is one based on the specific type of baptism by immersion and not sprinkling or pouring. Each time I stress that all, to all new Christians that they should see baptism as their first act of obedience as a new believer. I've taught that membership is vital to the Christian life and that the Bible gives no picture of Lone Ranger Christians living apart from God's elect. That you cannot fulfill the commands of Christ without the close communion to other believers who are personally committed to and even covenanted to one another. I have and do currently teach these things at our local body. But all these things I just said are matters of sanctification and not justification. They are an essential part of the continual Christian growth that every Christian needs and not a matter of a person standing before God as part of God's people. As the new believer is taught and grows in faith and trust, they'll want to do God's will. If church members, pastors, elders, deacons, and shepherds are continually working to help the Christian grow, they will see baptism and membership as a necessary result of their new life as a child of God. To bar the new Christian from the communion table delivers the message that they are not one of God's redeemed and that their salvation is somehow incomplete. As Augustine has said, and Calvin was fond of quoting, there are many sheep without and many wolves within. We cannot actually know for certain who those are, who those that are part of the elect. Therefore, we must leave it to them to examine themselves as the Bible instructs us. The idea that we can somehow create a visible local body of Christ who's more pious by making the standard for acceptance into the local assembly higher reeks of the Donatists and the Novations in the early church who separated themselves to try to be from those who were less pure. And how do those additional rules affect mature believers? Consider those who have even been baptized according to their understanding of who are possibly members in good standing, and even some who are faithful, contributing members of other local churches who are kept from communion by the closed position. When we consider that all guest pastors who deliver a message at your congregation, all visiting missionaries, all of those who have recently moved or who are visiting your church, all, all of our out-of-town guests from other churches, all military personnel, college students who come home for the holidays, essentially anyone who travels as an occupation will be withheld the right of sharing the Lord's table. The supper is very thing that should express our Catholicity, in a lower C sense, to all other believers who proclaim to the world that we share the one loaf and the one cup so that we may declare our allegiance and renew our vows to our Savior together as one united body. This rule would effectively prevent all of the disciples in the Bible, all the church fathers of past eras, and all of the great men and women of God outside of your acceptance for communing together to celebrate the great symbol of Christ's death for his universal church. If John John Bunyan, John Owen, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, and any other great man of God named John, were to come to your table, they would be treated the same as a non-believer. And there is the problem. It's not your table, it's God's table. All of these rules are without a direct command from Scripture to exclude those who are not formal members or who have not been baptized in a specific manner as the closed position requires. The open position that I'm defending does not 
does also include the caveat that those who are under church discipline should be excluded, as we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. The purpose of all church discipline is a hope for potential restoration with the local body. In fact, in the passage here, this person is giving every indication that they are not a believer. The types of flagrant open sin is an indication that their immoral lives give away the true status of their heart. So, as verse 5, 5 says, to put them out so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The desire of the overseers is that the person will be will eventually return, but now in a repentant state and ultimately get saved. But we can know about we can't know about every person. Now, um, to respond to some of your direct arguments um, from your opening statement, um, you mentioned the Baptist faith and message, um, which I have here. Um, there's an an interesting. Uh, article here that's written and it says that even of those that wrote the Baptist faith and message, I believe there's uh, either 12 or 16 signatories there between the, the, the 2000 revision that's there and at least four um, that this person had uh, went and witnessed this uh, good row and at least four of the churches that they visited of this revision committee when the Lord's Supper was taken in all four cases the church had practiced open communion and not even intercommunion. So the point is, uh, all Baptists do not agree on this, obviously, but even the signers of the Baptist faith and message, which I would say is weak excuse. Um, so actually, several of the other things that you mentioned here, um, I think you were quoting from the Didache whenever you were quoting part of that. There's some interesting things in there. You said you also denied... Um, that you would say that infant baptism is something you would deny. Interestingly enough, the Didache very clearly says that um, you can use water or sprinkling or immersion, all three in that. So if we want to go by just saying we'll use early Christian literature to be able to determine that, I would have to ask you if you would now accept infant baptism. So um, you also mentioned those that are in catechesis. What's interesting is that the those that were being catechized sometimes waited two to three years before they were baptized in the catechesis process. So it would be your understanding that what would be right if we followed the early Christians, that we would instead, that we would wait, potentially, that the, that these Christians would have to wait sometimes many years before they would be included into the membership, and that they would also be kept from being able to have um, right communion with the body based on that. So, um, also you mentioned uh, you you mentioned the way he was talking about the body um, in First Corinthians, and he uses that metaphor. And clearly, if we go straight to that passage, we'll see that it's not clearly just a local one minute part there. But um, let's also go to Ephesians four. When you go to Ephesians four, he uses the exact same um, metaphor about the body. And clearly, when you go to that passage, it extends beyond just the body. Um, looking for it here. Uh, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, seconds. who is over all and through all and end all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of God's grace. Um as we go through the, the passage, it, it's interesting who he's talking to there. I mean, he is talking to a local church, but he's also 
going through just as he does in the first Corinthians passage. And he goes through and he says, I'm talking um, to about Jews and Gentiles. And he it crosses all the way there so that it's not just the local body he's talking to. That is time. <clears throat> Alrighty, so since Tristan Tristan is done with his 10-minute rebuttal speech, oh. it's time for that's me. Yes, for hammer and your phone over So there, much so. technology these days, all at the same time. But anyway, um, we're still in the rebuttal uh, period of our debate, and so now it is time for John to take up his rebuttal. So whenever you start speaking, we'll start the time. Well, as was noted, this is a uh, this is a point of disagreement um, among Baptists, among people across the board throughout church history. I think we can all point to different areas where there is disagreement. That's exactly why this discussion continues today. Um, as we think about this, though, I think that there are some significant things to consider. First of all, uh, he brought up that there's a presuppositional difficulty in new converts. Uh, that there are people that come from different traditions and different backgrounds. Certainly, that's no different in the early church. You had people that came from paganism, people that came from um, all sorts of different religious backgrounds. Um, and yet, at the same time, I don't think that's a case for not doing it or doing it or making some um, emotional appeals on who we would exclude. The simple fact is that if you do hold to a consistent Baptistic view of baptism, then you will hold to a consistent Baptistic or historically Baptistic view. Granted, I will grant that there are exceptions. You mentioned Bunyan and Spurgeon and some others, and that's, that's very true. This has been a point of contention, but consistency would mean that in order for us to be able to exercise church discipline, one would have to be a member of the church. And in order for one to participate, we would agree that one would have to be baptized. And in that case, we would lose denominational and doctrinal distinctives if we said that baptism can be whatever we want it to be. In addition, if we are not to hold the line on this, what we open ourselves up to is we open ourselves up to losing our distinctiveness about baptism altogether. Because if we allow for unbaptized, and that's really what we're talking about, if we really believe that baptism is by immersion after belief in a gospel preaching church, we are allowing unbaptized believers to participate. And I think the normative thing that we see in scripture, and I'll grant that there is no explicitly commanded passage that says you shall or you shall not. At the same time, there are principles involved that do govern our understanding of scripture and that need to be taken into consideration. We see that baptism is introduced before the Lord's Supper is. We see that baptism was a normative thing that even Paul mentioned took place in Corinth. And the issue, the underlying issue is, are we willing to say that we will compromise our denominational conviction on what baptism is? Because should we open the door to communion for unbaptized believers, we open the door theoretically in the future to membership for unbaptized believers and baptism in and of itself loses its meaning. It loses its biblical meaning and its historical meaning. It loses the fact that it unites us to a local body. And what we're really talking about here, I think when we come down to it 
is the importance of the local church that's really at stake. The local church is the expression of the universal church. The local church is an indispensable aspect of God's plan for his people. The local church has the keys to the kingdom. The local church is the one that exercises church discipline. The local church is the one in scripture that, or the agents of the local church that are duly appointed are those that administer baptism. And so while we may say that there are those that come from different backgrounds and there are those that come from different traditions, are we willing to say that it's okay to compromise our fidelity to the Lord's command to baptize believers? And if we are willing to compromise that, we lead to all sorts of other issues. So I think that it's a dangerous proposition to say that just because we don't see an explicit command in Scripture, that it's something that... Um, that it's something that we can forego or it's not worth doing or examining in that way. The second thing that I would point out is there are emotional appeals in this. This is an emotional topic, and I get that. Um, if when I, I've been asked before if I would deny participation in the Lord's Supper to R.C. Sproul when he was alive, if he would have showed up, and my answer was unequivocally yes, because I don't believe he's scripturally baptized and because he's not a member of our local church. The thing that we see over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians that we cannot escape is that Paul is dealing with specific issues in a specific church and admonishing the local church to address those issues. He brought up the issue of um, examination, self-examination. Well, in context, the examination is not examination of whether or not you're a believer. The examination in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is examination of whether or not you're in right relationship with the other members of the body, that you're in doctrinal unity with the other members of the body, that there are not divisions and fractures, which he has enumerated out throughout the first 10 chapters of that book. That's the core issue that's going on in Corinth. The core issue is an issue of a local church. And the reason that their participation is not actually participating in the Lord's Supper if you, if you look at that text, Paul says you're not even really celebrating the supper because when you come, there's divisions within the body. Well, how is there any way to have unity in the body if we don't know what the body is, if we don't delineate who the body is? Am I to have perfect unity with every believer that shows up? Are we having every person in, in, um, that shows up willing to participate in the Lord's Supper by simple virtue of the fact that they've said that they're a believer? As we've seen in our culture, saying something is cheap. We have churches that are filled with unbelievers because we've relied on the validity of a mere profession that in many cases is elicited from an emotional response without the enduring fruit that accompanies that. The first fruit of that would be baptism and participation in a local church as part of the discipleship process. Yet at the same time, we see in scripture that normatively that immediately follows believe or the profession of faith. And so while we see the, the uh, seemingly individualistic interpretation of examining yourselves as valid, there is legitimate uh, contextual criticism of that, that the call to examination is really a call to the local body to examine itself in its relationship with one another. In other words, as uh, Greg Allison says, it's not about worthy participants, but worthy participation. And that participation takes place in the context of a commitment to and an involvement with a local church. In addition, as we've talked about over and over again, and I don't think has been adequately answered, how do you, how do you actually participate in, uh, in uh, church discipline 
without baptism. We see that church discipline is barring people from the table. So there are those that are barred from the table. Then church discipline necessitates church membership. You can't go around and discipline anyone that you see in unrepentant sin on the merits of their profession of faith and have anything that'll stick apart from some sort of meaningful practice of church membership, whether that is a seemingly foreign to the New Testament formal church membership like we practice today, or the implicit church membership that happened in the early church by virtue of the fact that they professed faith in Christ and were baptized into the local body. So I think that if we are to argue that, and, and I think we can agree because of the terms of this debate that baptism and church member or and church discipline would prohibit somebody from participating in the Lord's table. And let me just clarify, I mean, lack of baptism and, and an active church discipline situation those two demand some form of membership and involvement by the local church. And so I don't see how we can just open this up to anybody on the basis of the fact that, yes, I agree there will be a universal church that will be participating in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of those things that, that he said in that regard are true, yet that doesn't negate the necessity and importance of the local church in the expression of that, the authority of the local church, the importance of communion and community within the local church because communion is not only about the vertical communion is about the horizontal as well do i have communion with a visitor that shows up that's not part of my local body certainly in some sense i do because we're believers in christ yet on the other side of that i don't have that kind of unity that i have with those within the local body of which i am a member and so i think that what happens is we've sort of truncated this down a little bit and narrowed it down on the basis of One an emotional appeal, we would be eliminating or excluding some people. And at the same time, really what we're talking about is everybody limits the participation in the Lord's table in some regard. Lutherans, Catholics, uh, Presbyterians, all of them. The difference is that Baptists have a narrower understanding of what baptism is. We have a more uh, distinctive understanding of what baptism is. And so if we are to say that we will accept baptism in that term from other churches that practice a different kind of baptism, and by that I mean a sprinkling of infants or some equivalent thereof, other than um, believers' baptism by immersion, then we've lost that denominational distinctive. And we do this in an effort to placate and try to appeal to the masses. And so... My argument is really an argument for holding the distinctives that we hold in consistency. And that All is right. time, John. That moves us, of course, to the next element of our debate, and that is the open dialogue. And the way this is going to work is that uh, Adam and I are going to kind of bounce back questions between you two. We already have some were posted online, and we'll, uh, we'll not begin with those. I'll let Adam go ahead and... Uh, Start us with the question, or you want me to go ahead and start with some questions from online? Oh, well, I guess I could start with a quick one anyway. Go for it, yeah. Um, so, yeah, if we want to say 10 minutes, we got to get that minutes, clock set minutes, and so up. I'm going to go ahead and hit start. Are you both ready uh, for us to begin this kind of open dialogue? And you're welcome to kind of jump in. We don't want to be talking over each other, but uh, this is a little bit more informal, and so should be a little bit more discussion-like. So Adam's going to ask a question, kind of let you guys chew on it, and you can kind of go back and forth, and then I'm going to put out our uh, questions from the folks online. So, uh, Adam, take it away. All right, this kind of goes with, uh, from both of you, I just, it's mostly, I think I, there's a big 
tension um, where you both kind of hit a little rock in the road. Um, but anyway, there's a tension between baptism and a local church activity. And so um, anyway, I'd like maybe two minutes from each of you um, just kind of clarify what you believe is the position on um, baptism equals a local church activity. Um, you want me to go first? Yeah, Tristan. Okay. Um, so as far as the as far as it being a local church activity, absolutely. I mean, local churches have to do to do baptism, and as in order for you to be able to engage in it, but um, there's not a way to be able to. Uh, you don't really need to do baptism on your own, and that's not ever presented in Scripture. But it doesn't actually present a, a clergy person as someone who is um, the only one allowed to do it. And actually, there are some. Uh, uh, examples from whenever I studied baptism in the past, especially from church history, where that's been uh, clearly not the the case. There's been lots of uh, different types of baptism done, um, but I, I guess the part I was uh, disagreeing with John on was more about the fact that uh, you know baptism. It, 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 we're only looking at. Um, the narrative passages, and then we're trying to put together a law where a law does not exist. And so um, that would be my my difference between that. I'm not sure if you want to uh, clarify any more of the question as far as my position on yeah. that or anything. Well, I think that, that, that helped out, so I'd like to throw that over to John here. Yeah, I think uh, I think what that is, is that's, a, that's an example. So let me just clarify first. My position is that uh, the keys of the kingdom, the, the authority to baptize was given to the local church uh, or her representatives, so duly appointed representatives. So I'm not arguing that um, that a pastor has to be the one to baptize um, somebody, although the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith would argue differently. But I, I do think that the church is overseeing that. The authority is the local church. So we have fathers baptized, believing fathers, baptized fathers, baptized their children. Um, and so that's a believer baptizing another believer, but it's done under the umbrella of the local church. And I think that that's an example, though, of where there's not an explicit command on how you're to do that. We, we as Baptists would say, yeah, the, the ordinance of baptism is for the local church, but there's no explicit command. So we can't just narrowly interpret Scripture based on explicit command. We have to look for principles and patterns that govern and guide how we do that, because as we can see there's very little in scripture as to how we do church how we do church in large measure is governed by principles that are applied and so um so i think that the the way that the local church fits into the baptism issue is that there's an authority that the local church has and that baptism is done under that authority in the same way that um the other ordinance of the church should be exercised so, John, I'm going to go ahead and uh, use a few questions that we have online. The first one that I have is directed like directly at you. comes from Joey Ledford, and he says, Would John's position on baptism presuppose that if someone leaves one local church and becomes a member of another, that they should be rebaptized? Uh, no. It, uh, let me... As, as with everything, let me just clarify. If the baptism is a legitimate New Testament baptism, and by that it's a believer immersed by a church that preaches the same gospel, then no, 
there's no need for for any sort of rebaptism. There's there's one baptism. You're baptized one, and so we accept baptism from people from different denominations as long as it meets those three qualifications of what we understand baptism to be. Go ahead. Would like, yeah. Would you like to follow up on that, Trice? Yeah. No. I mean, I I I think I agree. Um, in essence, the I mean, the question is. Is the teaching that somebody received about baptism that they learned from their church, that they learned from their pastors, is it appropriate? Is it correct? Because there are many different understandings. And so if we make the bar what my interpretation of that is, and I, like I said, I've preached uh, several sermons over and over about how the important necessity that it's only for, it's only creedal baptism, it's only, you know, all of that. But the point is, is that. You know, again, you said, yeah, but there's not any rules. Um, you know, there's not any direct commands. And what I would say is, I agree. And that's where I draw the line. I say, where there's not a command, I don't feel the ability to add one. So, um, so would you accept baptism from a uh, person that was baptized as an infant into membership in your local church? Um, well, I think that might be a different question than, than the open position. Um well, I don't think so because that if we say that membership is required for ba- or if, or if we say baptism is required for membership, then we've got to define what baptism is. And if Certainly. you define we, it by saying it's explicitly immersion, and there's there's other understandings which are acceptable, then you would have to, by definition, admit that member or that person into membership. And this has gone gone around back and forth quite a bit. I know John Piper and Wayne Grudem have have been locally urban recently having this discussion in the last few years as well. And that, you know, trying to determine, um, you know, who, who is and who is not. But honestly, I do believe that for membership, there's a difference between the Lord's Supper and baptism. I mean, I think that it's okay to have some rules for membership. I don't think it's okay to have some rules that you design that keep people from the Lord's Supper. So that would be the difference for me. I mean, one, where, do you, one, where do you see membership in, in scripture then? Like where would you see a command to have mem- where would you see a command to have membership? Well, I believe a command for membership all the way through is, you know, that they were being added to day by day. So we know that there was a number that was being increased and they knew who the people were, and it's clear that they were, you know, written to churches. So it's I mean, obvious membership is almost an obvious solution there. So or a result there. It's Right. What's that? It's not explicit, right? Uh, well, I don't believe that it's explicit to the point of saying that it doesn't. Like you know, commanded? No, I mean, to be a member of a local church, I think, is an important part for every Christian. I think that's the observation we see there, but that's definitely not something that is uh, directly commanded be a formal member of a local church. Okay. I mean, unless you know of a scripture, I don't. No, I'm just, I'm just trying to understand a little bit better where you're coming from. Okay. Is it all right if I jump in with another online question yeah. for you guys? Uh, John, this is actually more directed towards you, and it's a little bit longer, so uh, forgive me. And if it runs over just a minute and you get to answer it, uh, not quite as uh, big a deal. Uh, but here it is. But John quoted Thomas Schreiner, but Schreiner has also stated the following. Modern Western culture is highly individualistic. And the emphasis on personal freedom sets us apart from our ancestors. Nevertheless, we must be aware of an overreaction, for early Christians did teach that individuals need to repent and believe 
and we're responsible for their decisions. This is, of course, from the 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude commentary, New American commentary. The question is, it seems that in 1 Corinthians 11.28, of examine himself, which is in the singular in Greek, would be one of those primary decisions the believer is supposed to make. Could it be that the individual is the primary decision maker in taking communion and the local church polity has a secondary role, form of accountability? Just to let you know, we have a minute and 20 seconds, so there you go. Yeah, so that's that's a that's a doozy. I'll I'll try to be really quick. Like I agree with Schreiner. I think that we're very individualistic, and that especially Jewish culture uh, was less individualistic, much less individualistic. They thought more in terms of corporate, and I think that that comes through in First Corinthians chapter uh, eleven. I think that the call to examine oneself is a call to examine oneself in relationship with the local body. It's not just an individual examination. It's an individual examination in the context of the whole. So there's the individual aspect, but the corporate aspect playing out there as well. In other words, am I in right relationship with the corporate body? Are there divisions within the body? If I called, cause dissension, am I one of those ones that's, that's, uh, that's suing my neighbor that's a, that's a part of the same local church? Uh, I think that the corporate aspect is primary in his mind in the call to examine oneself, yet you can't have the corporate without the individual. So the individual call to examination is in the context of the uh, less individualistic whole of the local body. And go ahead, Tristan. We'll, just, we'll extend a little time for you to kind of follow up on that. Well, as far as what he was saying there, as far as uh, about the local body i mean we don't have we don't have a lot of uh disagreements on a lot of this stuff i mean as far as the way we feel about you know what a christian should do it all everything hinges on this idea of whether or not you know you're allowed to make rules beyond that and if if the rules actually prevent people from doing something that's commanded by god and so that's that's the actual problem that that we have and i was having a hard time I've got a super echo in these headphones, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> well, let's go ahead and move on into that uh, final phase. And, of course, our, uh, our closing statements are hopefully going to summarize your arguments and put forward the case as to why you believe you have, um, have taken the debate. So, uh, with that said, we started the debate with Trison. Uh, we're going to go ahead and let John get the... Uh, first of the last words. And so, John, uh, whenever you are ready to put forward your final argument, I'll hit start on our timer, and you've got five minutes. Again, one-minute verbal and 30-second verbal warnings as you come to the end of your time. So, John, take it away. So, uh, I would just... identified with the local church. So membership worked very different. We see evidence in the early church of people carrying 
the letter with them to let them know that they were a member in good standing when they went somewhere new, and then they were accepted on the basis of that letter. Membership does not need to be defended. Membership was a given. It was a presupposed condition that Paul and his hearers in the early church both understood as a necessary consequence of baptism and conversion. The issue is, for whom is the Lord's Supper to be celebrated with? Is it an, is it an individualistic thing? Is it something where I go and I can just go up to any church and participate in the Lord's Supper without any connection to that local body? And so while I agree there's no explicit command in Scripture that you have to be a member of the church in order to participate in the Lord's Supper, I would argue that it was so normative and so presupposed that membership went along with conversion that it didn't even need to be argued. I think, I think the central issue, again, of 1 Corinthians is the unity of the local body. The issues of an individual are tied back to the connection with the local body. I agree that there's a universal church, but I also would argue that there is that the expression of that universal church is in the local body, which holds the keys where there is authority. I think I've shown that you cannot have meaningful church discipline, which we see in 1 Corinthians as modeled and required for, uh, or required that you not be involved in that for participation in the Lord's Supper. We see that meaningful church discipline cannot happen apart from some form of membership, whether that's an informal acknowledgement that you're a member because you've come for a certain number of weeks, or whether it's a formal membership process, as many churches understand it, but you cannot have any sort of meaningful discipline without meaningful church membership. I think I've also shown that the baptism ordinance is an ordinance that is given to the local church. And in the same way, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance that is given to the local church. What we believe about baptism has got to be consistent in our application of the ordinances. If we hold to baptism being a certain thing, namely immersion after belief by a uh, church that preaches the same gospel, then we must ne necessarily come or uh, require that for a participation in the Lord's Supper if we are to be consistent with the application of the ordinances because these ordinances are given to a local church. If there's disagreement on what baptism is, as there is disagreement in what the Lord's Supper is, those things become important. Would we allow somebody who holds to a Catholic view of the Lord's Supper where we're re-crucifying Christ over and over again, who happens to be a believer to participate? And would we say that that's unimportant? In the same way, we have to find some way to be able to make sure that there's some unified theological understanding of what is happening there. And while I don't argue that church history is uh, definitive or infallible, I think we also can learn a lot from looking at it and One seeing minute. not only, not only has there been a large amount of disagreement, but up until the Enlightenment and up until um, probably the 1840s in particular, most Baptist churches held to a closed communion um, understanding. And so we have a rich heritage that up until recently has been the tradition of the Baptists. And so I think with all of these things taken together, while I would concede and agree that there is no explicit command, I think we can't just govern 
based on where explicit commands are. I think we need to govern our practice based on principles as well that are rightly applied with grace, but also with fidelity to the normative practice that we see in the Word of God. Well, thank you very much, John. That was like, I mean, you had 10 seconds left, so uh, well done. Did you practice that speech? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Just now. Outstanding. Well, go ahead, uh, Tristan. You, of course, have the final statement here in this round, and so uh, you will go ahead and uh, summarize your case here and put forward your best argument. You have five minutes to conclude our debate. In my opening statement, I laid out the criteria that would be necessary for how to determine who should win the debate. John never contested those parameters when I laid them out, and I don't believe he was able to satisfy those requirements. He admitted as much. Notice that what you don't hear in the you didn't hear from him in the debate was that there were any commands from Scripture, and he agreed with that, that require believers to be barred from communion for a lack of formal membership. When a person strips away tradition and they looks at the texts without our presuppositions, many times it leaves us, perhaps for the first time, to be able to gain a fresh understanding. Tradition is not a four-letter word, but it's also not it's also something very different from sola scriptura. The church must declare the gospel to its members and to the world. But we're not simply to say the words of the gospel. We're also instructed to see the gospel in the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. As Christians participate in this symbolic act with other believers, the visual words proclaim their trust in salvation through Christ's body and blood, sharing the one cup and the one loaf together as the church local and universal until Christ returns. From listening to this podcast, I'm certain from listening to John's podcast, I'm certain that he and I have much in common in regards to the value and necessity in church membership. The difference I see between us is that I'm not willing to add any rules that would prevent believers from a blessing that are they are commanded to follow in order to accomplish those desires for stronger membership. Truly, unless you fence the table physically by asking non-members to leave or by having separate members-only meetings where you can prevent all possibility of non-believers from partaking or those who have had the wrong baptism, then you would, in essence, still be leaving it up to the individual's conscience as whether or not to partake. So even if you theologically hold to a closed position, your practice is open, which is the position I've argued for today. Even though I am wholeheartedly in favor of baptism by immersion, I do not see the text of Scripture a demand to make the test that a test for orthodoxy. The amount of water used to perform a baptism will not be the grounds by which a person will be admitted into, the hev into heaven. It is a spiritual baptism rather than the physical baptism that will be what decides if a person is justified before God and whether or not he will have a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the new heavens and new earth. When I sit down at the heavenly table, I don't want to be seated next to somebody who I refused at the table. I was allowed to sit. A decision must be made by the leaders of each local church who will they will invite to the Lord to the Lord's table. Will they go beyond the instructions given by our Lord in the scripture and create a rule that will without a doubt prohibit some who are true believers from observing this spiritual blessing? Let's hope not. I'll finish with a few quotes. Uh, we do see that this is Ray Van Nest, and this is from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a book um, called The Lord's Table. We do see that converts were baptized before participating in community observances. Of course, this is the pattern we expect. It's not, however, a law requiring us to bar those 
who, due to misunderstanding, have improper baptisms. We must be careful not to create laws where we only have patterns. Um, here's another one from John Piper. Membership of the local church should be, generally speaking, as close as possible to the terms on which one enters the membership of the universal church. Um, and here's one, that, and this is the first particular Baptist church um, under pastors John Spilsbury and Hercules Collins. Um, they practiced open, open communion. Collins taught that none are to be excluded but those who in confession and life, declare themselves infidels, profane, and ungodly. And here's two from Matthew Henry. As Matthew Henry said, One minute. Is any more required to fit you for the sacrament than is necessary to fit you for heaven? And yet, and last one, But the Lord's Supper is the table in Christ's family at which we're to eat bread continually. The great master of the family would have none of his family missing at mealtime. Um, I'll go ahead and forfeit my last 30 seconds there. All right. Well, guys, uh, thank you so, so much. That was awesome. Uh, we will probably have to go back and go through some of these things in a future podcast. Uh, John, man, I just so appreciate your hard work on this. Tristan, I appreciate your hard work on this. Uh, I let Adam kind of take it away from here uh, because I'm not on the screen. Oh, well, that's fine. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll formally uh, close this one out. So that has been... Is open or closed communion a more biblical model for the New Testament church? So now the charge is for you guys. Um, you know, this will be in podcast form. You can download it. You'll be able to get it on YouTube. You'll be able to listen. Um, and so if this is really important to you, and it's, this discussion is a very important discussion to have, so what we should do is do the thing that Paul um, commended the Brians for, um, take Everything to Scripture, they didn't even believe Paul until they searched the Scriptures and uh, found out what he had to say was correct um, according to, again, Sola Scriptura, our only soul, fallible, infallible, um, now I've just, uh, just lost Soul infallible <laughs> word of faith. Yeah, yes. faith. <laughs> yeah, for faith and practice, our standard and everything. So um, please, you guys, uh, just to grow, um, we'll yearn for that spiritual milk. Um, which is the scriptures and what God has spoken. Um, use this as a means to edify yourself because you're going to come into this um, discussion with somebody else eventually. So again, thank you, Tristan and hey, John, <laughs> without an H. Yeah, John. <laughs> it's in there. It's in my brain. And hey, you guys, yeah. you guys close it out. I don't know yeah, if John yeah. knows how we close it out. Oh, right, it's you on know, the screen. So yeah, so you closed it out last time with us, right, John? The, the, uh, three, the three magic words. No. Yeah, I don't remember what we did. <laughs> well, it's solely Deo Gloria. Yeah. So you take the Gloria, you take the Deo, and I'll take the Soli, all right? All right. So this has been the Tag Your It podcast. I'm Ray Ray, and we've got Tristan, we got John, we got Dave, and uh, we got who else we got in the room that you have? Christian. Christian, yes. yeah. Yeah, Christian, yeah. which is oh, my son. Wow. Yes, which is Tristan's son. So from us, Soli. Deo. Deo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>